Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court has raised the stakes in the politically explosive fight over abortion rights. It's agreed to hear arguments in a matter of weeks rather than months over the controversial Texas law that bans almost all abortions after six weeks of pregnancy before many women even know they're pregnant. When she told me that I was measuring at ten and a half weeks... I just cried. I was heartbroken and terrified because I felt like the only option that I knew I had was gone. This 21-year-old Texas college student called more than 30 abortion clinics in nearby states before finally getting an appointment at a clinic in Mississippi, a predicament that Justice Sonia Sotomayor referred to in her partial dissent. My guest is constitutional law professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan Law School. Leah, the justices are going to consider these two cases on an extraordinarily expedited basis, briefing schedule culminating in oral arguments in just 10 days. What does that tell you, if anything? It's hard to read that much into the decision to expedite the cases, given that At the same time, the court declined to disturb the Fifth Circuit opinion that had put on hold the injunction against SDAs. That is, the Supreme Court declined to prevent SB8 from being enforced while it was considering these cases. So it doesn't appear to think that there's enough of an emergency to require the court to put SB8 on hold while it considers the cases, but still enough of an emergency to require the court to expedite consideration of these cases. So it's hard to read too much into the court's decision to grant the cases and hear them on such a quick timeline. The orders arise out of two cases. Tell us about the cases and the different questions in them. So one case is by abortion providers and the abortion providers sought an injunction that would prevent SB8 from being enforced. And the second case is filed by the United States, and the United States also sought to prevent SB8 from being enforced. But the differences in the case arise because the United States, because it is the federal government, has the authority to sue the state of Texas. Private citizens, like the abortion providers, however, do not. And so the abortion providers had to identify particular state officials who had some connection to the enforcement of the law in their lawsuit 
And the questions in the abortion provider's case are basically whether the officials that the providers named have enough of a connection to the enforcement of the law, given that the state effectively tried to outsource enforcement of the law to private citizens and avoid litigation. The questions in the United States lawsuit, by contrast, concern whether the United States as an entity is injured by SBA. No one doubts that the providers who were no longer able to obtain abortions are injured by SB 8, but Texas is arguing that the United States isn't injured and that the United States doesn't have the legal authorization to sue. The United States lacks what's called a cause of action. So those are some of the different questions that are in play in the two different cases. This was the second time the court refused to block the law. How unusual is it for the court not to block a law that's being challenged and the court is considering? It really depends. I would say the practice is sometimes not to block the law, but given that this law is conceitedly unconstitutional and is preventing people from obtaining abortions in clear and undisputed conflict with Roe versus Wade, It is unusual to not block the law, which, again, Texas is barely even bothering to defend on the merits. Some people have viewed that refusal as an indication that there are five justices who are willing to uphold this law. I think it's difficult to know what the Supreme Court is going to do with it. I think there is a possibility that the Supreme Court will say the United States has authority to sue states that it believes are acting unconstitutionally and that have a thought to insulate themselves from accountability to private citizens. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the Supreme Court would then say SB 8 is unconstitutional. That is, ostensibly, the only questions that the Supreme Court will be addressing in these cases is whether a federal court can even decide whether SB 8 is unconstitutional and, if so, enjoin the law. The court is only addressing threshold procedural questions about whether a court can decide if SB 8 is constitutional. Justice Sonia Sotomayor called the high court's refusal to once again block the abortion law catastrophic. Can you tell us about her partial dissent? Absolutely. So Justice Sotomayor points out that SB 8, by the time the Supreme Court will have heard oral argument, will have been in effect for two months. In that period of time, there will be people who have become pregnant, won't know they are pregnant, and will not have been able to obtain and will not be able to obtain an abortion in the state of Texas, given that this law has shut down abortions more than six weeks after a person's last period. Justice Sotomayor also recounts the influx of patients to clinics in other states desperate patients who come to abortion providers and doctors in tears seeking medical care that doctors are unable to provide them, as well as the individuals who, because of a variety of circumstances, are not able to travel out of state to obtain abortion care. Those harms, Justice Sotomayor says, won't be remedied even if the Supreme Court ultimately says a federal court can enjoin SBA going forward. Was it unusual for the court to bypass the appeals court, which hasn't made a final ruling here? So 
granting certiorari before a court of appeals judgment is unusual, but the Supreme Court has done it in the past. They did it in some cases involving the Trump administration, involving challenges to the census, and they have previously done so in cases involving the sentencing guidelines. It is an atypical and not commonly used procedure, but both the United States and the providers had requested the court to do so in part because the Court of Appeals had said, we're not going to allow an injunction to be in place against this law. And they also didn't seem to be in any particular hurry to ultimately decide whether the law was constitutional. The Fifth Circuit hadn't set argument in one of the cases even now, and it didn't set argument in the other until December. So what's your opinion of the argument here by the United States and by the providers. Do you think they have a good argument before the court? I think both the providers and the United States are correct that they should be allowed to have a federal court hear their claims on the merits. The providers sued state court judges and state court clerks asking a federal court to prevent state court judges and clerks from docketing cases filed under SB 8. The Supreme Court three decades ago said that federal courts have the power to enjoin state judges who are acting unconstitutionally. And so that question is kind of settled. And there's no doubt that state court judges and clerks bear some connection to what is happening to the providers and to the law that is being challenged, SB 8, because it's only by virtue of the fact that these lawsuits can be filed in state courts, that abortion providers have been chilled from providing abortions and are no longer able to provide abortion care. I also think the United States is correct that the United States has the authority to sue to enjoin unconstitutional state action that is designed to evade judicial review and has thus far successfully evaded judicial review and attempts by individuals to enforce their constitutional rights. The United States has an interest in securing the supremacy of federal law, including the Constitution, and SB 8 would also prevent the federal government and federal officials and federal contractors from assisting abortions that are permitted under a variety of federal programs. So I think both the United States and the providers have strong claims on their arguments, but that's not to say the Supreme Court is necessarily going to agree with either or both of them. What's the best argument that the other side has, Texas? I think that for the abortion provider's case, Texas's best argument is this law outsources the enforcement to private citizens and therefore no state official has any connection to the enforcement of the law. Um, And on the United States lawsuit, I think You know, their best argument is the injuries that the United States are asserting are injuries to the providers, not to the United States, and that Congress, if it wanted to, you know, could provide the United States with a cause of action that it has not chosen to thus far. Sort of what's overhanging this whole thing is that on December 1st, the justices are going to hear a Mississippi appeal in which the justices are being asked directly to overrule Roe. That Mississippi case, is there any way it can be approached by the justices without looking at the merits of the law? Is there a procedural question there? 
In the Mississippi case, there aren't procedural questions aside from the fact that Mississippi has changed its argument from the time it initially asked the Supreme Court to hear the case to now. Um, but aside from that, there aren't really threshold procedural arguments that are being raised at the Supreme Court. Is the court going to decide about Roe in that case? Well, it could. There's no doubt that the Supreme Court will say something in the Mississippi case about the scope of constitutional protection for abortion, whether and to what extent it is willing to admit that it is modifying Roe versus Wade is unclear. Public approval of the court is at a record low, according to the latest Gallup poll. Supposedly, justices don't consider that, what public opinion is. But is that something that some justices do consider and might consider here? I think all of their behavior thus far indicates they are aware of public views of the Supreme Court. We have seen several justices speak out publicly to defend the Supreme Court as an institution against criticism that the Supreme Court is partisan, including in the Texas abortion case. And we saw the Supreme Court decide to hear the Texas abortion case on an expedited basis when they were criticized for failing to do so two months ago. So I think it's very likely the Supreme Court hears criticism of the court's decisions and actions. And in at least some cases, sometimes they appear willing to modify their behavior in some ways. But there's no telling what will happen in this case, in the Mississippi case. No, no one has any idea. And I think it would be unreasonable to hope that the Supreme Court just says we adhere to Roe versus Wade and every court that has looked at laws that prohibit abortions before viability and say these laws are unconstitutional. Thanks for being on the show, Leah. That's Professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan Law School. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. 
Com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Vaccine mandates from employers and governments have been challenged in federal courts almost 40 times this year. But so far, they've largely passed legal muster. But there are conflicting court rulings about vaccine mandates for health care workers in Maine and New York. The two states both tried to mandate the shot for health care workers without giving them the option to bow out due to their religious beliefs. In Maine, a federal judge allowed the state to move forward without offering employees an exemption, while in New York, a federal judge extended an order that temporarily blocked the state from enforcing the mandate for workers with religious exemptions. Joining me is employment lawyer Dominique Moran, a partner at Farrell Fritz. Are religious exemptions pretty much the standard for COVID-19 vaccine mandates? The question that you ask sort of presupposes that a religious exemption is the language that we're all using and the way we want to evaluate it. There certainly is the standard that in most policies there is a vaccine mandate that allows for accommodations to be granted based on religion or medical reasons. I distinguish between the words exemption and accommodation because I think they're different. Explain why. The word exemption suggests that either you get vaccinated or you don't, and there's no other obligation. Under the law, Title VII, which governs most employers, requires that employers reasonably accommodate any sincerely held religious belief. That reasonable accommodation may involve an employee not being required to get the vaccine, but having to comply with any number of other requirements so that the employer can ensure, for example, the health and safety of its workforce. We can use the word exemption. I just think it's important to understand that an employer doesn't have to say, you don't have to be vaccinated, and that's the end of the discussion critically important that everyone who's asking for some sort of accommodation understand that's what they're asking for, an accommodation, not just that they don't have to comply with the vaccine mandate. Six states, Maine, New York, Connecticut, West Virginia, Mississippi, and California, have vaccine mandates for health care workers without a religious exemption. Why do you think those states frame the mandates that way? In the interest of providing a healthy and safe environment in healthcare settings, states wanted to demonstrate the importance of having everyone vaccinated to reduce the risk of spread of the virus. They did so in many of those jurisdictions with very little advance notice. And so they've adopted this. And candidly, it is challenging to evaluate a sincerely held religious belief. 
So they've adopted those very broad standards. In New York State, what we've seen is that Judge Hurd has already issued an injunction that does not allow New York State to enforce that mandate without a religious accommodation or exemption protocol. Let's say an employee says they have a religious objection to a vaccine mandate. How does an employer determine whether or not that is a valid objection? So every employer should have a policy that allows for the employee to raise that objection, preferably in writing. And we want the employee to tell us what is their religious objection. The employer then has to go back and look at, okay, can we ascertain whether this is a sincerely held religious objection? That analysis is challenging because the law doesn't say that it has to be a common religious objection. The law doesn't say that it has to be a religious objection that is sanctioned by a specific church or by some religious official. So the absence of a religious official saying you can't get vaccinated is not the standard. And that's important for employers because there are some who I've looked at policies for clients in their initial drafting that say, give us a letter from your religious leader. That's not required. So we need something that explains the religious objection. For employers, they're going to have to evaluate that. Is it sincerely held? That's a difficult standard. It requires some probing. For most employers, though, they are going to quickly move beyond that question and assume it is sincerely held and move on to can we accommodate? Is there an accommodation that can be granted that achieves the same goal, which is to provide a healthy and safe workplace and reduce the spread of the virus? So then do you think another reason that the states tried to you know, mandate a vaccine in this way was to avoid the hassles of having to figure out the religious accommodation. I don't know that states were looking to avoid the hassle. I think states were motivated by wanting to get more people vaccinated. So the vaccine mandate gave lots of reasons for employees to say, I'm on the fence, but I'm going to go get vaccinated because there's this mandate. I don't want to call it a hassle, but it does require an interactive process. That's what Title VII has been requiring for years. And so employers have this obligation under Title VII to go back and have an individual dialogue. Is your religious belief sincerely held? Can it be accommodated without putting others at risk of serious harm? So, Dominique, tell us about these conflicting court decisions. So what Judge Hurd said in New York was, wait a minute, this standard that you've set for this mandated vaccine with no religious exemption, we're going to look at a few things. And there were some facts in New York that are a little different. The initial order that had been drafted for healthcare facilities included the religious exemption. And so Judge Hurd looked at the original order and then a subsequent order which excluded the religious exemption and said that targets religious behavior. And under Title VII, where you have this obligation to accommodate religion in the workplace, and under the Constitution of the United States, if you're going to target religious beliefs and he viewed the move 
from having a religious exemption to eliminating the religious exemption as targeting religious behavior, then you have to meet a very high threshold. And Judge Hurd said, you can't meet that threshold because you're providing an accommodation to those with disabilities. And if that can make it safe, if providing accommodations to those with medical disabilities can make it safe, New York State had not adequately explained why they couldn't make it safe for those with religious beliefs that prevented vaccination. So that's a key difference. I also think we're looking at a very complicated issue regarding state rights and federal rights. And I think we can expect that an appeals court is going to have to evaluate this issue in the end. And let's talk about the Supreme Court, which hasn't addressed this issue. This Supreme Court has tilted toward religious rights over other rights. What's likely to happen if this reaches the Supreme Court? The challenge with this issue generally is that the state's compelling interest in getting people vaccinated is based on a need to keep the public healthy and safe. So the public health interest is the compelling interest. As more people get vaccinated and as the rate of infection comes down, the question of whether this gets to the Supreme Court is the first thing that people are going to grapple with. By the time that we get through an appellate court and to the Supreme Court, will states need a vaccine mandate to protect the public health? Or will there be a sufficient number of people vaccinated such such that we don't need a mandate because the risk has been reduced? When we get to the Supreme Court, I think we are looking at fundamental constitutional issues. I think we are looking at federal law and whether it preempts state law. So in the ordinary course, the general rule is when a federal law conflicts with a state law, the federal law wins. It's called federal preemption. The question will be in these jurisdictions, what is the analysis? Is there a conflict? That sometimes is a question. And then if there is a conflict, does the federal law win? Even with a conservative court, what we can expect is that strict construction that federal law should preempt state law. And then we can expect that they're going to look at a strict scrutiny of these laws and whether they are necessary to protect a compelling interest. Let's talk about OSHA. Right now, OSHA is preparing a rule, an emergency rule. So tell us what OSHA is doing, and then we'll talk about the challenges that are likely to come. Sure. So President Biden announced that there was going to be a federal mandate that would come from OSHA for employers of 100 or more employees. That mandate is supposed to include a vaccine or test mandate for all employers, with 100 or more employees, that rule is being prepared by OSHA. What we expect that rule to include are conditions. How often does testing have to take place? What kind of vaccine proof is required? Who's going to bear the cost of both the vaccine as well as the time to be vaccinated and the testing if that is the alternative? 
So we're looking for that rule to be finalized. That rule has been sent to the Office of Management and Budget. That was done on October 12th. They, although they have a long time to review the document, I want to say it's 90 days, we're expecting that a response is likely in the next few weeks from the Office of Management and Budget. Once the rule is approved, it can then be adopted. It's likely to be a final interim rule, and then we can expect a timeline for implementation. Many governors have said that they're going to challenge the rule. They say that, you know, they don't want their states to be subjected to any federal rules. What's their challenge to the OSHA rule likely to be? Again, states can challenge it on the grounds that it's not necessary, that it's an overbroad mandate. But there is this issue of federal preemption, and so OSHA has the ability to set workplace rules for the health and safety of employees. And in the case of the OSHA rule that we're likely to see, there's a built-in alternative to vaccines. The built-in alternative is testing, which is likely to prevail if challenged because it's not just a vaccine mandate. And so the argument the government has to make, the federal government has to make for enforcement, is an easier argument with that testing option. Let's take Alabama, for example. Everyone's talked about Texas. Let's talk about Alabama, where the governor signed an executive order directing state executive branch agencies to comply with the Alabama Attorney General's office as it challenges the Biden administration's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Kay Ivey said, as long as I am your governor, the state of Alabama will not force anyone to take a COVID-19 vaccine. So the state of Alabama may not. But what happens, you mentioned this before, when the federal government comes in and says, for example, federal contractors, because on December 8th, the Biden administration's mandate that all federal contractors be vaccinated will go into effect. Can the governors of the states do anything about that? The governors are going to have to challenge it in court. That is already being challenged in Montana based on a similar position. And so we are likely to see the federal government defend lawsuits, and we are likely to see federal judges have to grapple with this question of, does federal law preempt state law? And again, that vaccine mandate with no religious exemption, with no exemption for disabilities, that is a much higher standard, and it's going to get strict scrutiny. So that question, if it with no exemptions for religious beliefs or for medical conditions, is a much higher threshold. I think we are likely to see judges look at the federal mandate from that perspective and address the issue if they can without ever getting to the issue of preemption from the state law. You know, there's a lot of confusion about vaccine mandates. We've had mandates for years and years for school children to get into school and for decades. Why do you think there's such confusion and resistance to vaccine mandates today? Great question. And one of the things we have to acknowledge is that the vaccine mandates that have existed in schools have been longstanding. So there's lots of evidence and there's lots of views about the safety of those vaccines. And they're all children. As we look at the COVID-19 vaccine, there are two significant differences. We're asking adults to be vaccinated and adults have much greater individual opinions about everything. 
But the second one is the timing of the vaccine. This is a relatively quick moment. The vaccine was developed and rolled out in a very short window of time, which has led to some vaccine hesitancy. So the difference really depends on those two qualities, how fast the vaccine has been rolled out, as well as the fact that we're asking adults to get vaccinated who may have very strongly held beliefs. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Dominique Moran. She's a partner at Farrell Fritz. Another legal. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.